On a sunny day in January, a ghostly figure covered in green ribbons appeared on a moor in southwest England. It was a person dressed as Old Crocken, guardian spirit of Dartmoor. He was greeted by 3,000 people who'd gathered to protest a court ruling that took away the right to wild camp in the area. It was the biggest countryside access protest in living memory. There can be little doubt as to just how many people feel angered over what they say is their right to wild camp on Dartmoor. 4,000 acres of it is owned by a hedge fund manager, Alexander Darwell. It's been a really important part of people's lives for generations. I take my children here, my friends take their children here. Many thousands of people every year from both in the county and out come and camp on Dartmoor. So, the ruling reignited a long-running concern over land in England. Who owns it? And who is allowed to use it? The aristocracy and landed gentry still own around 30% of English land, and half of England is owned by less than 1% of the population. The debate about where people can and can't go in the English and Welsh countryside is back on, if indeed it ever went away. A tiny number of extremely rich and powerful people have grabbed all the rights and excluded the rest of us. We only have, under the existing right to roam legislation, access to 8% of English land, 3% of rivers. But how did we get here? What does land ownership have to do with wealth and power? And is there another way? Welcome to the new Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, should we have a right to roam? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Okay, so this week I'm really chuffed to be joined by Nadia Sheikh, naturalist, conservationist, land justice activist and all-round badass with Right to Rome. Hi Nadia. Hello. Thanks for being with us and I'm really pleased to also be joined by Francis Northrup, Associate Fellow at the New Economics Foundation and another badass. Hi Francis. Hey Aisha. Okay, I'm really pleased to have you both. Let's dive in because I've got lots of questions. So in the intro there, we just heard about Old Crocken appearing in Dartmoor, joined by activists, local people, ramblers, wild campers, painted a lovely picture. So Nadia, coming to you first, why did so many protesters descend on Dartmoor in January? What were they angry about? Uh, yeah, so it was a it was an outrage from people because the owners, um, the Darwells on Dartmoor, who had purchased land, were going to court for a ruling to remove people's freedom to wild camp. So Dartmoor, this area of Dartmoor, was the last place in England where people could wild camp. Wild camping is basically just going out and you know with your tent on your back and sleeping under the stars for free so not going to a campsite and leaving no trace and this was the last place in England where people could do it and because it was the last place it was the place where so many groups and organizations and individuals would go to for that kind of pilgrimage I suppose and that experience to sleep under the stars hence the outrage this ruling to remove the right to do that and who was the guy you mentioned who's the landowner tell us a little bit about him uh, Alexander Darwall, so um, business guy, all round kind of like, he was a hedge fund manager, I'm not sure he is anymore, but an incredibly wealthy man, had bought that bit of land, I can't remember when now, a fair few years ago, um, is mainly used is it for pheasant shoots, kind of selling access for pheasant shooting, but there was you know, a specific bylaw or a bit of act that didn't specifically say people couldn't wild camp, um, so there was an assumed right 
that people could do it and have done for many, many years. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Sounds like a stand-up guy. All right. So Francis, <laughs> you know, they're all, they're all the same. Uh, Francis, you've been working on land reform for a long time. What does it say about our economy and society for you that someone like Alexander Darwall, who's just been described so wonderfully, can just make that decision to restrict access like this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting how people concentrate their wealth through buying land because it enables them to then generate more power and wealth. So in the case of somebody like Alexander Darwall, because they make their money through um, equity trading or uh, hedge funds, then they can continue to have power in that arena by also kind of, you know, the pheasant shoots that he runs on the estate will be for people who are also in his network so that he's continuing to generate income and influence and money. And that's what happens, well, across the world. But um, in England, in Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland, that's really common, not just in rural areas where it's definitely more concentrated and more um, sort of landed estates, but also in urban areas. All right. So... What was their argument? What is this Alexander dude saying about why he restricted access? And then I guess the second question is, were you kind of surprised by the level of support this case drew? Like it kind of really seems to show um, that this is something people care about. Yes, I'm I'm happy to come in on this. So the argument was that in, in the bylaw for Dartmoor, it says that people could undertake recreational activities. So the argument was that camping is not a recreational activity. And so wanted to stipulate that camping is not something that you can do. So you can walk on the land, but you cannot camp. And it's no surprise that, you know, just as Francis was saying, when you've got that amount of power and wealth and influence, and the court ruling was was in his favour. To be able to take away the freedoms of so many to do something so simple and leave no trace uh, is just abhorrent, really. And and it's no surprise. I think it's a bit like when an animal goes extinct, everybody's kind of outraged at this really sad thing happening, yet and kind of want to bring it back. And I think it was just this kind of last remnant of freedoms that have increasingly incrementally been taken away across England over hundreds of years. Our rights have been taken to access and be on land. And it was just this last remnant. And I think sometimes when those last remnants are taken away, that's when the noticing happens. And that that's when the awareness is lifted. And I guess that kind of shroud of that we've got in the way we, we look at England, um, we don't really realise how few rights we have on land and to access land. Um, and it just exposed it. But Dartmoor specifically, because it was that last place, it was the place where Duke of Edinburgh students would go and camp. And there's the 10 chores challenge. So a lot of the kind of existing outdoors scene or sector, that was the place they would flock to, to undertake those activities and that learning for young people. So it, it is no surprise, really. I think it's really clear that the Dartmoor case is is symptomatic, as you say, of such a, a much deeper problem. Some of the material that I've seen from the Right to Rome campaign talks about how we all need to become commoners again. I don't really know what that means. Uh, Nadia, could you tell us what that means uh, and what it actually looked like when common land was more prevalent in, in the UK? It depends how far back we want to go. There's always been kind of problematic systems, starting with the feudal system, where peasants, those commoners that lived on the land still had to give food and money 
um, and pay taxes to exist, which was just decided one day. And then moving more problematically to the enclosures where vast swathes of land were owned and enclosed and privatised, pushing whole communities, villages and towns from land where people used to live a subsistence living away. So, yeah, it's kind of a complicated, insidious history of removing those kind of rights so that there were commoners. There was always an assumed right to just be. So our freedoms were always there, even though increasingly we might have to pay taxes or give food or whatever, um, or it might have kind of belonged. But increasingly this idea of ownership and then with ownership, the ability to exclude has just happened throughout our history. So we we were commoners, so we could use the land to put out our cattle, sheep, um, and panage with pigs, and we could exist, you know, using the resources. And that's when we had, you know, the system of the commons, but that's increasingly been been taken away. All right, that makes sense. So can you just tell us a bit more, Nadia, about why we don't have access to common land today and who who does own it um, and what kind of, you know, subsidies and government support that these landowners are entitled to? Yeah, it it is incredibly complex. So I'll try and do my best here. So with common law, it meant that people lived on land in an area could people who lived there had commoners rights to be able to graze their cattle and to, to be on the land and use it. But increasingly over time, wealthy landowners have bought up those bits of land and with that, the access to the commons that are taken away from the majority of people who have increasingly moved to urbanized areas. And so what we've got is this increased concentration of wealth and ownership. So like you said, right at the top, less than 1% of people own more than 50% of land in England. And so like kind of the common law goes with that. And commons have been increasingly kind of enclosed and taken away to individual landowners. And the system that we have in terms of government funding towards landowners Owners, we have like basic payment systems. So when you own land, you get government subsidies to do things on that land. And it's usually really, really basic stuff and really huge sums of money. And I don't want to necessarily be quoted on the amounts, but and you know, in recent years the Darwals have amassed um huge sums of public money just because they own the land. So we have a system where when you are an incredibly wealthy person or someone that's inherited land through generations, just because you've got it, you get money from the public purse to manage it in a certain way. And that's not necessarily always happening. So there are certain government subsidies, for example, which pay a landowner to manage the land in an ecological way that's for the benefit of nature and wildlife. Yet in England, the majority of our Triple SIs, for example, which is sites of special scientific interest, are in poor condition because that work just isn't happening. And I know that something big happened around this in year 2000 in terms of land access. Can you tell us about the Countryside Act? Yeah, so that, that this comes off the back of, we do have a history in England of people fighting for land rights and land access, uh, the, the most famous being um, Kinder Scout Mass Trespass. Uh, 90 years ago of people fighting for their right to exist because we were completely excluded. We're not allowed to walk across it or be on it. And so with, you know, massive amounts of like people kind of asking and pushing for more access, eventually we got the Countryside and Ranks of Way Act, which is known as the Crow Act, um, which was a fairly bureaucratic and complex way of identifying a right-of-way system and uh, footpaths across England, which gave us access to about 8% of England, and that includes like uplands and certain paths through the country. And so whilst 
a lot of people do celebrate it as a success. It's not massively a success because Scotland, just over the border, instead of having a complicated Countryside and Rights of Way Act, they went for a full right to roam. You know, although people don't own the land, it means that the owners of the land still don't have the right to exclude, which is a different system we've got in England, is that when you own it, you have the right to exclude the freedoms of people walking across it. So that's what happened in 2000. And yeah, it's still pretty meagre, to be honest. There are about 70 constituencies which have zero access land in their constituency. And then some places like the Peak District, where there are vast amounts of uplands. So the inequity across the country is, is huge. Mm, fascinating and so depressing. Um, Francis, I know that you were involved in a piece of work called Land for Who. What was it Land for Whom? I don't know. Can you tell us what you learned? Yeah, uh, this was a really interesting piece of research that we did into whether there should be an English Land Commission, similar to the Scottish Land Commission. And it was in partnership with Shared Assets and then latterly um, Untelevised, who also do an excellent podcast. And we, we talked to people across the land justice movement who were involved in various different sort of themes of land justice so around sort of housing and food and access to nature. So we spoke to people like Beth Stratford from London Renters Union and Sam Siver from Land in Our Names and uh, Billy Dezine, who runs East Marsh United, which is on a housing estate in Grimsby, and uh, Tyler Hatwell from Traveller Pride. And all those recordings are online, so you can listen to those. But basically, we were sort of asking who should the land be for? The sort of key findings, apart from the fact that people felt very strongly they shouldn't be an English Land Commission, because even the concept of English land is quite a challenging one uh, with the, you know, the history of, of colonial activity. So in, in Scotland, they've had a land commission for quite a few years where they've been looking at how they can bring uh, land back into commons and public ownership. So the most good example of that is the Isle of Egg, which is entirely owned by the people who live there. Um, and uh, they've got renewable energy and uh, sustainable kind of ways of, of uh, running services and, and providing for their needs. But the, the Land Commission looked to enshrine into Scottish law particular different rights so that people could buy back land from landowners so that they could meet local needs and also create created pots of money so people were able to do that. And so the, the conversation about whether there could be an English Land Commission, we thought that the best way to find that out was to do this piece of research. And, and like I say, the, the findings were very much that yeah, the idea of English land was quite um, just triggering, basically, because it has such negative connotations. But also that the conditions to create a Scottish Land Commission were absolutely there. There had been quite a strong lobby over a long period of time. The Scottish government was supportive of it. You know, they were they were actively looking to you know pass laws to support it and to identify funding pots for it. And in England, it just seemed entirely unlikely that that would be the case. And so that was why uh, the, the findings were much more about how people needed to be networked to kind of make use of the, the laws that already exist. So what we sort of found was that there was this kind of that what we call the heavy concrete of the way things are. So this sort of whole system that's geared towards landowners and, and preferential land rights, but that 
within the system, there were all kinds of really great things happening. Sort of in the soil, we sort of did this really beautiful illustration. which was around like the mycelium of how all the different sort of land justice struggles that are happening in the practical projects, both in urban and rural areas, are kind of there like aerating that soil and so we needed to do more of that because actually all the powers that you kind of need for compulsory purchase and bringing land back into public and and common ownership that they're all there it's just the kind of it's the political will and the pressure that needs to build to make that happen but it doesn't mean that there haven't been more local land commissions so liverpool did one liverpool city region recently did a land commission and southwark have just started a land commission so it is looking like the devolved sort of authorities are starting to look more at how they might enable their residents to become more active and bring more ownership into those kinds of hands. Okay. So I've heard about, you know, how the Countryside Act lets us roam over more of England. And we've talked a little bit about some of the land analysis that's been done around it. But as you were saying, Nadia, we still only have the legal right to access 8% of land and the right to roam campaign argues fairly, I would say, that this isn't enough. Nadia, could you just tell us a bit more detail about what the Right to Rome campaign is specifically calling for? Yeah, I mean, just on that point, crucially, the freedom that we've got at the moment on that 8% of land, this is just to move through it, right? You couldn't stop and have a picnic. You can't do any of the enriching activities, which, which kind of or about what it is to be human. It's sleeping under the stars. It's swimming in our rivers. And, you know, actually we've got access to less than 3% of waterways as well. And so it's way more richer. Like the right to roam, we often conflate the issue with our freedom to be on land as humans and all of the richness that that gives us with kind of the outdoor sector and the outdoor activities, which I guess kind of the middle of the last century Outdoor access has kind of been co-opted by white middle classes in a, in a lot of ways. It's it's there to be conquered. It's it's associated heavily with kind of outdoor pursuits and activities, which cost a lot of money and exclude people. And so, what the Right to Roam campaign is asking for is kind of a couple of things. It's one, it's to get our legal right enshrined in law to people that live on this land to have the freedom to walk across it and wonder and be but it's something deeper than that it's not just being able to walk it's instilling again this culture that we do belong and we have a responsibility to protect it and we have a responsibility to be part of it in a meaningful way particularly given that we have we're in an ecological and climate crisis and in England we've got some of the worst biodiversity left in the world. So I guess we are, we're immediately calling for a right to roam act to give us a right to roam similar to how Scotland has got it, not just an extension of the crow. We don't just want more crumbs of like, okay, you can have a few hundred more kilometers of footpath here or a little bit more access here. We want a fundamental right to be, and we want to challenge this idea that just because we have this system of ownership, it doesn't automatically mean you have a right to exclude people. I mean, I'm going to have to unfortunately put on my GB News host hat now because I need to ask my <laughs> I need to ask my devil's advocate questions in response to what you were just saying because one of the things that I know is a kind of recurring point of opposition, I guess, is, you know, what's the difference between something like a right to roam and just being able to stroll through someone's garden whenever you want? So yeah, maybe I'll let you come in on that before I hit you with another stinker. I'm looking forward to them. So yeah, so in terms of like gardens and properties, it only makes up like 5% of the land. And as with Scotland, it's understood in the Scottish Outdoor Access Code that you do not camp or go near people's dwellings. And we would expect that same 
understanding to be extended in England as well. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to walk in anybody's gut. We're British. We're awkward. We don't want awkward conversations. <laughs> like it's just we get and you know we get this quite a lot. But it's fine that people should have a right to privacy. But what if you're a landowner with a thousand acres? Like that's not that's not a fair enough garden. I'm not happy that that's somebody's garden that they can close off from people. So absolutely, you know, we don't want people walking in your front yard and looking through your curtains. But that's just simply not going to happen. You know, our media perpetuates this idea that the country is full. It's like you know, rammed. There's too many people, and people are walking across gardens. Yeah, it only makes up for like five percent of land that kind of private property. When your garden is vast. You know, and it includes mountains and hills and lakes and rivers. Let's just put it into perspective a little bit. Mm, seems reasonable. Okay, so another one. Let's talk about litter. So a lot of big landowners, and I've seen this on the news myself, um, are arguing against the right to roam by saying that they're scared about the damage it might cause. So things like littering or damaging wildlife habitats. I think I heard uh, someone on the news talking about how, you know, all these wild campers just want to come in and fornicate and set fire to things, I think was a direct quote. So Nadia, can people be trusted to treat the countryside well? Is there actually any environmentalist argument for, you know, restricting land access in the name of conservation? Just to say, back in the day when we have access, <laughs> when we had access to the commons, commoners and communities would gather and they would play music and they would probably fornicate and do all of these wonderful things. It's not that much of a problem, but that's, that's by the by. <laughs> Maybe we can get there another day. But we get the issue of litter brought up quite a lot. And I'm a naturalist and conservationist. I'm an ornithologist. The last thing I ever want is to somebody to stand on a meadow pipit nest or a nightjar nest or any other ground nesting bird. You know, I've been working in environmental policy and in the sector for quite a while. I don't anymore directly. The massive issues that are affecting our wildlife, so our bees, our flowers, our ground nesting birds, is overwhelmingly intensive agriculture, habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, the pollutants that come from intensive agriculture leaching into our rivers and streams, silage that's sprayed on fields. These are the main human things that are driving down our wildlife population. It is not a crisp packet and it is not a water bottle. When we worry about hedgehog population decline, it's simply not litter. What litter is, when we see individual bits of human litter, it's a proxy for our frustration at humanity. Like we are all a bit frustrated because we've caused this problem and there's this kind of like idea that humans are the problem and we we need to disappear and so nature can thrive. But quite frankly, humans have lived alongside nature for millennia, for as long as nature has been because we are part of it. The idea of this kind of individual litter being the problem that's affecting wildlife just simply isn't true. The majority of plastics and that visible litter that no one likes to see, because we hate it as well, is like on beaches, it's often fishing equipment. And across our countryside and farmland, it is kind of farmland type plastics and equipment. That's the majority bulk. So yes, let's address litter because it's a pain. Nobody likes it and it's ugly. And obviously you get plastics going into the sea, creating my microplastics. But if we're going to talk about litter and, and human-made things that we put in the environment, let's talk about it as a whole. And actually, you know, I've worked for various conservation organizations and I've worked with people in the outdoors and Everyone doesn't want to leave a trace. They want to do the right thing. And all of those people feel that way and do the work that they do because they've had access to nature. There's not one person in my entire career that I've met that doesn't want to cause a mark that would cause harm. And that's because they're in it and they love it and they want to protect it. So the idea that in perpetuity, we must keep humans away from nature 
in order to save it doesn't make sense. What we need to do is we need to bring more people living in a lifestyle where they get to access green spaces and learn to love it because we've been cut from it for so long. There will be a re-education process. It is going to take time. People still don't necessarily understand to have a fire safely or do those things. And there's always going to be a few people, for whatever reason, they want to leave a tent or they do things. But, you know, those very few incidences shouldn't be a reason to take away our rights for everybody enjoying the outdoors and learning again how to live in harmony with it. Well, she's good. You've got me there. <laughs> You've got me. I've just ripped off my mic. I've stormed off the stage. I'm I'm angry that anyone's booked you as a guest. Um, Francis, yeah, do you want to come in? Yeah, only to say I, I was thinking about this argument as well because it's almost like we need to redefine what antisocial behaviour is <laughs> because I think the antisocial behaviour of hoarding kind of land when all the things that Nadia has spoken about can be enjoyed by so many people, that's far more antisocial than people learning how to be in the countryside again and how how to behave. And so I, I think there should be more focus really on people like Alexander Dowell and how antisocial that is compared to the idea that somebody might yeah, drop a, a crisp packet. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it, I wanted to talk a little bit about alternatives there, because it seems like such a big part of this, right, is ultimately about ownership. It's about this massively ridiculous, disproportionate ownership of the land that means that s- some people are allowed to, as you say, exclude others from it. So, Francis, are there different models of land ownership that are used in other places? I know we've talked about Scotland a little bit already, but yeah, any others that kind of spring to mind that could be inspiring? Yeah, I mean, there's ones that are around urban land and and rural. I mean, it is very hard to access land back into the commons, partly because it's very expensive now because prices keep getting pushed up by people who are multimillionaires buying land. Um, And that seemed to be an investment for people. You know, Ed Sheeran's got land in Scotland. So it's kind of like, where do I put this excess money that I've made through whatever career you know, I've had, even if some of that is being put into more generative use by better landowners. But there are things like the Ecological Land Co-op and they collectively buy land and hold it yeah, in a, a cooperative model so that it can be used for regenerative farming. There are things like community-supported agriculture projects where people collectively farm the land and, and people buy a share of the produce and then that goes back into the production and then there are sort of also estates dotted around that are actually held in trust and are, are much more cooperatively run. So there are models for an alternative. It's just that access to that land is it's scarce because it's being hoarded by the people with the cash. Mm, okay, that's really helpful. I wanted to talk a little bit about a question which, which I think often comes to mind for me, which is who feels more able or more entitled, I guess, to kind of claim this right to nature. And I know that the countryside in the UK is often seen and experienced by a lot of people as quite a, you know, white, undiverse space. And Nadia, I know that you've done a lot of thinking about this and, and some work in this area. So wanted to just throw to you to talk a little bit more about, yeah, who might feel more or less able to kind of have a stake in this fight. Yeah, it's something I've got, haven't worked in the environment sector for quite a few years, I did recognize that, you know, people that worked in the sector for saving nature, conserving it and being in the outdoors is majority white. And so the conservation sector itself is the least, second least diverse sector after farming. And 
funnily enough, both associated with land and what happens with land. And so that's led me on a like a little bit of a journey of understanding like what's actually happening here so that those that work in sectors around land um, and those not accessing the kind of outdoor pursuits and activities or being in green spaces, why is that? And the barriers are huge and complex, as you can imagine. Some of the reasons are around simply people not feeling safe or welcome. I mean, particularly the work that I've done is around black and people of colour not feeling welcome in the countryside. There's also, it's so ambiguous because we have this weird system of where you can go and can't go with countryside rights of way and private property trespasses will be prosecuted. We have this culture of like keeping people out. It is confusing for a lot of people of like, where can I go? What are my rights? That's not clear. You kind of have to go online and learn about it before you go for a walk a little bit. But also just like the outdoor sector in itself is very kind of patriarchal and quite, it's kind of become quite elite to like, you've got to have the right gear. You've got to know what you're doing. I organized an event last year called Kinder in Colour, which was on the anniversary of the Kinder Scout trespass, because we knew on the 90th anniversary, what would happen is it would be celebrated at this amazing landmark in our history of having access rights. But we kind of wanted to say, no, it's only celebrated by those who go out on maybe organized walking and who are already experienced in the outdoors and confident enough in the outdoors to go and go and do these activities. But for so many people, there are still heaps and heaps of barriers. And when we started talking about it and advertising it, quite overwhelmingly from the outdoor sector, there was questions of like, do they even know what they're doing? Do they know if they got the right gear, if they got the right footwear? Do they know how to keep safe, you know, on the hills? And these are fairly small hills. So there is this kind of still gatekeeping, even by how we view the outdoors as how to be in the outdoors properly. Well, actually, it's fairly easy for someone to go onto a green space and sit under a tree and just enjoy being in nature. But that's not how we that's not how we view that being in that space. So the barriers are many. There's financial cuts to public transport to rural areas, all of these increasing barriers. But also for a lot of people culturally, that kind of commodification of the outdoors as an activity is just not something that people have known or been introduced to culturally. Me growing up, my mum's uh, from a working class background in Newcastle and, and my dad's from Pakistan and just doing those like hiking and stuff. It's just not anything I ever did. And when I looked at the outdoors, I was always like, that's where you go do the activities with all of the gear. So like there's, yeah, there's just the, the barriers are just many really. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, you know, cause I grew up in the North of England in a, you know, on a council estate and I just didn't ever really think of nature as something that was, it just wasn't even ever on my radar. Like I was never like, I'll go for a walk or, you know, and Yorkshire is a beautiful place and there's lots of stuff to do around there, but it just never felt like it was something that was for me. Whereas the sense that I, something I realized as I got older is there's quite a lot of people who've grown up with this instinctive relationship with nature. That's like, you know, they felt feel it, like they've got a stake in it. And it's something that they kind of, I guess it's something that they feel is like a natural use of their leisure time, for example. Whereas for me, I was just like, I couldn't, I just couldn't really connect with it at all. And so, and I, I'd probably say that's true for a lot of kind of, I guess, working class people of color or whatever, working class people in general, lots of different identities that it just feels a bit alien. So I think things like Kinder in Color, you know, when I saw it, I was like, oh, wow, this really is something that feels like it's making a huge step in the right direction in terms of like staking a claim for non-white middle-class people and saying this is for us as well, you know. 
All right. So we've talked a lot about rural spaces, um, but I want to just wrap up by talking a bit about the towns and cities where most people live in the UK. You know, Nadia, you and I have just mentioned this. So Francis, coming to you, is right to roam relevant to people who live in kind of more urban built up areas? Yeah, I I think the right to roam really is relevant to this. Um, But there are some really significant differences that I think we probably need to sort of think about. Uh, like the right to roam and the and the wild camping specific stars are for everyone campaigns are both excellent and they're really targeted and they've got really clear asks and in an urban context the the sort of situation is slightly different around land ownership and the and the types of people who own the land so like the hoarding of land does happen particularly through land banking but often that's across locations so in different cities and towns across the UK and and in rural areas and so Although that might be one one owner, they're not all in one place, like a big estate like um, Alexander Darwall's on Dartmoor. And also there's very different types of landowners and, and many of those are absent. So there's not a kind of a villain, if you like. There's not somebody who is a, a face of something. So combined with this is, is like the attritional loss of public land and buildings that we've had over time as well. So particularly over the last 10 years where austerity has accelerated this, there's been like the loss of lots of public realm, parks, like whole housing estates and social infrastructure, such as libraries and health centres. And that's often been through public-private development partnerships where the developer wants a high level of private housing, which then leads to gentrification. Or like big projects like HS2 and the Olympics where parts of Stratford were privatised that had formerly been council land as part of the deal or that the spaces around stations and things will now be being privatised much more with with HS2. There's actually a really good report by the Bureau for Local Investigative Journalism called Sold From Under You that's worth looking up that sort of documents the amount of land and buildings that have been lost through, through FOI requests over the last 10 years. So the way that the right to roam and, and uh, has worked, Darwall's behaviour has really kind of acted as like a lightning rod. It's like a rallying call. And he's, you know, the actual act of him challenging while camping has, has put his head above the parapet. Whereas urban landowners are kind of more insidious in that they don't really declare intent. They just kind of incrementally gather more land, like it's a bit like boiling a frog. And whilst that severely curtails the right to the city and, you know, the right to roam within the city, it's kind of hard to run a campaign around this. So while there are some excellent individual campaigns to save land and buildings across uh, England and Wales and and Scotland and Northern Ireland, they don't kind of tend to sit under one clear ask. All right. So I want to just end by talking about political support. So I don't hear much about this coming out of, you know, current government or Labour leadership. Is this a, an issue that, that political parties are on board with? And if so, whom, how, what's happening? Well, there is. So after off the back of the Dartmoor case, there's been increased political support, which is great. And we're currently talking to politicians about this. Uh, so Labour have committed to a Right to Rome Act. We don't know what that's going to look like yet, which is great. I, I guess the campaign started two years ago and we didn't expect to be in this position quite yet. I think the Dartmoor case, so, you know, for all of the pain that Alexander Darwall's was brought people in terms of removing their right to camp is actually helped helped quite a lot to bring it into the kind of public discourse and into the political space. So that's useful. Greens have, you know, Caroline Lucas has long supported the Right to Rome campaign and has a private member's bill for a Right to Rome Act present. And Lib Dems have also um, started to 
to speak publicly about supporting a right to roam act. So the extent of that and what it looks like, we don't know yet. Obviously, we hope it's the most land for the most people so it can reach most people. So moving in a positive direction. All right, all right. That's, that's good. That's, that, that's not more than expected. So pleasantly surprised. And Francis, what about the same on kind of land ownership stuff? Is there political will there? Yeah. So, I mean, at the moment, the current government aren't very likely to be making any changes to land rights, any kind of legislation yeah, anytime soon, because partly because a lot of them are landowners and landlords. And I can imagine the Labour Party and other parties would look at it, but I can't. It's a really strong lobby the sort of, you know, landowners and and landlord lobby and developer lobby. And it would be very, very hard to get anything um, substantive and meaningful through parliament, I imagine, even if there was the political will to do that. So we we sort of are, you know, looking at the existing rights that we've got. And like I mentioned, compulsory purchase earlier, I mean, that is an existing right that, you know, councils and and other government bodies can you know, use if they want to bring land into like public or commons ownership for in the public interest. It's not used as much as it possibly could be. It's used a lot for developers, but not so much for actual councils to do their own developments or joint developments with community organisations. So that could be used more. But I think what we are seeing is those devolved authorities I mentioned before starting to think much more carefully about how they do use their uh, their powers to have a much better understanding of how the land and assets in their places are being used and whether they can uh, bring more of them back into public ownership or support communities to bring them into community ownership so that the things that are desperately needed now in places, partly because of the attritional loss over the last 10 years, need reinstating, so social housing and health centres and um, youth centres and and libraries and parks and, and all the kinds of stuff that, that are so essential to human thriving, but uh, yeah, are, are currently kind of a bit out of our reach. What I'm going to wrap up with is uh, saying to you, Nadia, about the Right to Rome campaign. Seems like there's lots of momentum. Very exciting. How could people get involved if they wanted to? Yeah, it's a good question. I think first and foremost um, is for individual people to get to know the green spaces that they can access, get to know your river, get to know your trees. We can never campaign and there'll never be a movement that is successful unless we are able to live within that movement, what we're fighting for, which is, you know, the freedom to breathe fresh air and to visit and spend time with our kin in nature and understand on a deeper level why it's so important to us and share that with children, people that you know, get out into green spaces, which is just fundamental and important for as many people as possible if you're able to do that. And other ways to get, I guess, in touch and I get, I guess with the campaign in itself, there's a just an explosion of local group networks from the right to roam. These are just groups at a grassroots level across England where people are asking questions locally about what footpaths, because there are micro enclosures all the time. Footpaths are always being closed. Access is currently being removed every day, every week. It might be a pond that a child has always visited. You know, one day you come up and there's a fence being put up. So challenging those and asking questions as to what was that allowed to be put here? Can is Have they got a right to close that off? So at a local level, get to know where you can and can't go and understand your surroundings is really important. Amazing. And join a local group. Yeah. Because they're sprouting up. I'll just Brilliant. keep in touch with the campaign uh, on Instagram and Twitter and anything else that we kind of come up with to 
to ask people for support, you can find out there. Not on TikTok yet? Snapchat? No, no, we keep talking about TikTok. I mean, I'm not, and I don't really know what it is, so I don't even know why I said it, but I feel like it's something that young people like. If there's someone listening who really likes to do TikTok (laughs) and supports the Right to Rome campaign, get in touch. If you like to roam while being on TikTok, (laughs) then please give us a shout. Uh, Fantastic. That is sadly all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast. Uh, As expected, it's been a stonker. Nadia Sheikh, thanks so much for being with me. If people want to find out more about your work, I mean, you just kind of said what they should do, but is there anything else that how how they can personally connect with you as an individual? Me as an individual, I guess follow me on Instagram at Pete Blackbird. And if you want to talk, let's talk. Lovely. And Francis Northrup, thanks so much for being with us. Same question. How can people get more Francis? <laughs> um, mostly hanging out on Twitter um, at Francis Northrop. And my pinned tweet is a summary of all the land for who research. So there's more about that there. Oh, a juicy pinned tweet. I love that. All right. That is it for today's New Economics podcast. But we'll be back soon with more. Don't you worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. Produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.